Okay, well, just uh, a little bit more information uh, about myself, so you know kind of where I'm coming from. I've been one uh, married to the wonderful Samantha, who's just ducked out, she'll be back soon, uh, for just over 24 years now. It's been a wonderful journey. Uh, love her to bits. We have a fantastic marriage and it uh, brings great joy to my life. Um, also bringing joy to my life and lots of complications and lots of hard work are our kids. Uh, so we have five kids. Uh, they're aged now from 19, Cassie, who uh, stood up before, down to Peter, who's eight. Uh, so a spread of just over 10 years. Um, we work for Power to Change, which was formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And some people who have been elsewhere in the world may know the name of, of Campus Crusade, which has actually also changed its name the last few years to Crew. Uh, but the name Campus Crusade is still pretty well known around the world. And I lead the university work in Australia as part of Power to Change. Now, that university work used to be known as Student Life. And I know a couple of you here have been involved in, in student life at uni, so great to see your faces again. Um, before that, uh, I used to be a chemical engineer for a number of years uh, before joining Power to Change, and Samantha was a speech therapist. Uh, Samantha grew up in Brisbane, and we've spent uh, more of our years together in Brisbane than anywhere else, but for about eight years, we actually called Toowoomba home. Uh, actually over at Harlexton, so not far from, from where this church kind of started. So uh, Daniel asked us to speak at this, this family camp, which is just a tremendous privilege. I've been really looking forward to it, uh, not just because of the beach and sunshine and the location and that sort of thing, uh, but also to, to meet more of you. Um, I have been listening to the sermons online and talking to, to Daniel and Sarah and just finding out more about the church and, uh, and what I hear just tells me that there's a, there's a great passion for Jesus in this church and uh, a love for one another and a real sense of community. So I've just been looking forward to kind of coming and being with you, uh, the people of Christ, uh, as you seek to live out the love of Jesus with one another and in your community in Toowoomba. Um, now he... Daniel told us that the, the twin themes or priorities for your church this year are seek first the kingdom and then something about reaching others through hospitality. And he asked Samantha and I to kind of tackle both of those topics here on this camp this weekend. So this morning and tomorrow morning, uh, welcome back, Samantha. Just been bragging about you. So. <laughs> um, so this morning and tomorrow morning in the church service, I'm going to unpack some of the aspects of what it is to seek first the kingdom of heaven. Um, this afternoon, we're going to be having an optional seminar. So it is optional. Uh, come along if you'd like. Uh, Samantha and I will be focusing on reaching others through hospitality. Now, we're just going to share some ideas and some stories of some neat things that God has been doing, particularly in our neighbourhood uh, since we moved back to Brisbane five years ago. Um, we've just seen God do some wonderful things, particularly amongst some of the kids on the street coming to know Jesus, but just connecting with our neighbours and, and seeing Jesus work there. So we're going to share some stories and uh, some question and answer time. We also want to hear from you. Uh, I've got no doubt that God has been enabling you to connect with your neighbours and friends and utilise hospitality to reach out to them. So we want to hear from your ideas as well. Yep. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
And then lastly, Samantha is going to facilitate a session tomorrow afternoon, which is for ladies only, so the, the secret ladies business. Uh, so guys looking after the kids or wandering on the beach, whatever you want to do. But the ladies will be here chatting about life-giving relationships. Uh, so lots of time for questions and discussion about what she shares or anything else you want to discuss about life, walking with Jesus, ministry, family, all that sort of thing. So, so my focus this morning is on seek the kingdom, seek first the kingdom, which phrase, of course, comes to us from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Is that, is that the kids next door or is that the microphone? No, it's, <laughs> um, it comes to us from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Now, I'm very aware that you've already heard some great teaching on the kingdom over the past few months from, from late last year through this year, intertwined with working through Revelation. Uh, in fact, I've, I've listened to each of the, king, uh, the sermons on the, in the kingdom series. And I want to thank you, say thank you to Adrian and also to Ben, um, who have been doing just a wonderful job laying the groundwork of what is the kingdom and what does the kingdom look like within us and then through us. Uh, so I know you've particularly dug into kingdom values uh, as uh, described for us in the in the Beatitudes. And I loved, Adrian, you, you had that concept of a de-attitude. So looking at the opposite of the Beatitudes and, and kind of unpacking what the Beatitudes are through that. That was a great idea. Um, you've also looked at the parable of the wedding feast with Ben and, and what a kingdom heart looks like illustrated by Jonathan, the son of Saul, as he attacked a Philistine outpost and related that to Jesus coming to us to, to get us at uh, Golgotha. You've also focused on kingdom mercy, and I, was, I really enjoyed that, that sermon. Uh, you hammered one of the great cancers in the world and in the church, that of criticism and condemnation of one another. So great stuff. It's been really helpful as a groundwork for our time this weekend. So today I, I just want to briefly remind us of some of that, some of the what the kingdom is about, and then take us in hopefully a bit of a new direction. Look at some new stuff about what it means to seek first the kingdom. Now, I like to be pretty interactive in, in these sort of times of digging into the word. So to get us warmed up, I want you to actually turn to the person next to you and have a chat about these questions. There are four questions there. What is the kingdom of heaven? What do you remember from all the sermons that have been before? Why did Jesus come to earth? What was his purpose? Who are you? Now, I'm not after your name or your occupation. I'm after your identity. Who are you? And then if you get time, what's the best movie you've seen recently? Okay, so just turn to one person next to you and chat. We'll spend a few minutes. Just chat through those questions. Go for it. So let's start off with uh, the kingdom of heaven. As you've heard about uh, for the last several months, the kingdom, God's kingdom, is an incredibly important theme running through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke use the phrase, the kingdom of God, most often, whereas Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Now, as Adrian pointed out a while back, uh, that's probably out of respect to the name of God and the habits of Matthew's mainly Jewish audience. And the two phrases, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, are most likely interchangeable. 
Matthew uses the word kingdom over 50 times in his gospel, which really does make it a major theme. At the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, when he first comes out of the baptism and, and uh, the temptation and starts to speak to people, his message was simply, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that is continuing the ministry of John the Baptist, whose message, summarized, was exactly the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Many of Jesus' parables were trying to explain, trying to help people understand what the kingdom is. So often parables will start with the kingdom of heaven is like, etc. Jesus talked about the entry into or possessing the kingdom is supremely valuable. And in fact, is the very purpose and meaning of our lives here on this earth. The gospel is simply the message about the kingdom of heaven. And accepting that gospel message is the only requirement for entry into the kingdom. Much of Jesus' teaching is about how kingdom citizens are to think and behave, their values, their priorities. Jesus trains his disciples to reach others, and when he sends them out in Matthew 10, guess what their core message is? The kingdom of heaven is near. Exactly the same. So the kingdom of heaven really forms the core of Jesus' teaching, what he was about. He taught about what it is, how to get into it, how a kingdom citizen should behave, what their values are, and even how they think. And the Sermon on the Mount, where our key phrase, seek first the kingdom of heaven, is from, forms a key role in the Gospel of Matthew because it's that first major chunk of script, uh, teaching from Jesus. Okay? Matthew's is a very structured Gospel and it has um, some stories and then a chunk of teaching. Stories, then a chunk of teaching. does that about five times. Right, and the Sermon on the Mount is that first chunk of teaching, and it's all about the kingdom. In fact, it's been called a manifesto of what it is to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom concept focuses on the reign of God in us and around us. It's, it's both a reality, because we live as, with Jesus as our king, and it's also a metaphor. It's kind of all... Well, People knew what it was to live under a king and in a kingdom. And so what similarities is there with, uh, with living with God as our king? Um, it unpacks what it looks like to have Jesus as king of our lives, both our inner lives, our thoughts and attitudes, our framework, our worldview, as well as our outer lives, how we relate to others. And those others can be either inside the kingdom or outside the kingdom. It's actually one of several metaphors that Jesus uses in Matthew's gospel to describe what it looks like to to follow him wholeheartedly, to live for him. Can you remember some of the other metaphors that Jesus uses, just briefly? Told you I'd be interactive. Here we go. Metaphors about following him, yeah. Take up your cross. Okay. That's a pretty drastic one, isn't it? Because in that day, those people knew what it looked like for somebody to take up their cross. They knew that dude was on a one-way trip, right? (laughs) Okay. Good. That's right. Right at the the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the way to heaven is is, um, a narrow gate, 
uh, go through that narrow gate, whereas the, the way to hell is, is broad and wide and lots of people go that way. Um, so metaphors, yep. The eye of the needle and the camel, yep, that's right. Harder for a rich man to enter heaven than to go through a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Very graphic and... Okay, yep. So the birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, comment on uh, the, the hardships of discipleship sometimes, following Jesus. Yep. Fishes of men, great. Yep. Any others? Good. Yep, yep. Okay. Getting more into sort of parables, that sort of thing. Yep, yep. Jesus also talked about us being salt and light. <clears throat> he talked about storing up treasures in heaven. Okay, and having, having priority there. Uh, he talked about being a good tree with good fruit. Okay, Metaphors all over the place. And this kingdom of heaven is, is similarly a metaphor as well as reality. Um, but each of these metaphors actually unpack somewhat different aspects or emphases in what it is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And there's lots of overlap in these metaphors, uh, but also slightly different uh, emphases. Now, in Matthew 6, <coughs> excuse me. thank you, by the way, for praying for my health this past uh, week or so. Um, a week ago, I saw a doctor hacking and coughing and <laughs> he said well that cough's going to be with you for the next couple of weeks and I was like okay how's this going to work um, but I was also just flat out in bed for a few days uh, a week or so ago and uh, now feeling lots more energetic um, the cough is still there so please keep praying for me uh, and thank you it's been really lovely to be preparing for this conference knowing that you are praying for me and for God's word to, to be spoken through me uh, and for the throat so we'll see what God does uh, today and tomorrow, um, always for his glory. <clears throat> so, back to Matthew 6, where we find that expression, seek first his kingdom. Um, it is actually followed by the phrase, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Have you ever wondered how Jesus can talk about seeking first his kingdom and righteousness? Seek first, top priority, two things. How does that work logically? You know, it can't actually work unless those two things, his kingdom and righteousness, are the same thing or at least largely overlapping. And that is true. <clears throat> That's a large part of actually what Adrian and Ben have been focusing on. How to seek righteousness within. How to seek first the kingdom inwardly, our character, our attitudes, our values, having mercy towards one another, that sort of stuff. And it is a huge part of seeking first the kingdom. And that's, that's probably the place you should start as you ask, what is it to seek first the kingdom? Well, it's seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. What does it look within to live with Jesus as my king? What does that mean for my attitudes and my thought life and how I treat other people? We've You've heard lots of great teaching on that over the past few months. So, therefore, I want to pick up on a somewhat different aspect of seeking first the kingdom, living as citizens 
of the kingdom of heaven. Come with me for a quick survey of this aspect through Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the kingdom as being like a mustard seed that grows, and I should catch up here, that grows to become a large tree, large enough to shelter many. He also says it's like yeast that works through the whole batch of dough. All through Matthew's gospel, as we said, Jesus preaches about the kingdom to those who don't know about it or don't know how to get into it. He preaches to give them information on that. Jesus trains his disciples to do the same. And as we said in Matthew 10, when he sends them out on their first mission trip, the kingdom of heaven is what they preach about. In Matthew 24, Jesus says the kingdom will be preached to all nations. And then the end will come, the second coming. You ever thought about that? Just pause there for a moment. Who here would like to see the second coming of Jesus ASAP? Yeah? Well, let's get into heaven. <laughs> All right? Well, if that's true, Jesus gives us a key to actually speed his second coming. Preach the kingdom. The kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then I'm going to come back. So that's something we can be a part of, and God will work through us in. So, um, yeah, the kingdom will be preached to all nations was the point I was making. Um, at the end of Matthew's gospel, <clears throat> Jesus gives the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 onwards. Now, he doesn't specifically mention the kingdom of heaven in that little piece, those few verses. But what he does talk about is the disciples going out and making disciples amongst the nations, to all nations, including baptizing them and teaching everything that I have commanded you. Now, I've just said earlier that the kingdom of heaven was a major part, a core part of Jesus' teaching, right? So as the disciples go out and make disciples of other people amongst the nations, the kingdom of heaven is going to be core to what they teach and what these new disciples learn and then pass on to others. So the kingdom of heaven continues to be passed on and talked about and preached about. And as we read on into the part... Oops, sorry, I haven't been catching up here. As we read into that part of church history that uh, we have recorded in the book of Acts, we see that the message that the expanding church preached was summarized several times as being about the kingdom of God. For example, chapter 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip, uh, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Into chapter 19, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively, what? About the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew would have had it. Chapter 28, right at the end of Acts, from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. Now, this is in Rome, the center of the world, really, to the people that were reading this. And then the very last verse in Acts, boldly and without hindrance, he preached, the kingdom of God, taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice here that in these passages from Acts, the kingdom is preached, it is argued persuasively about. What am I getting at here with this overview of, of Matthew picking up some verses there and, uh, and Acts? To seek 
First, the kingdom includes, must include, committing energy and time to the growth of the kingdom. Mustard seed, the, uh, yeast. That's growth not only within us in terms of righteousness, but it's through us into the lives of not yet believers. It is speaking out the kingdom so that others come into the kingdom. That's the emphasis there in Acts. That's why right in that Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom, Jesus talks about being salt and being light. They're also metaphors for following Jesus, but they emphasize that preaching, evangelism, transforming others aspect of living for Jesus, of being a citizen of the kingdom. So if we want to seek first the kingdom, if you want to fulfill all those other uh, great comments of Jesus like, be perfect as your father is perfect. If you want to store up treasures in heaven, if you want to choose the narrow gate, if you want to be the good tree with good fruit, if you want to be the wise builder by being obedient and following the teachings of Jesus, then we must be salt and light. We must be engaged in helping others find out about the kingdom and come into it. We must be involved in the expansion, the growth of the kingdom in this world as Jesus was and as the early church was. And that's where I want to focus in the rest of our time together today. And let me start off that focus with a perhaps pointed question. How many people here in this room entered the kingdom of heaven, became a citizen of the kingdom in this past year or so? Would you be so bold as to put up your hand? No? If you have or know of any kids that have decided to follow Jesus, come into the kingdom in this past year, could you put up your hand for them? One, two, three. Excellent. That's great. Great. So the, king, uh, the kids are becoming king's kids, which is wonderful. Okay, what about um, if you have come into the kingdom in the past, say, three years... Or you know of anybody that has come into the kingdom in the past three years that just isn't here this weekend, but has become a part of Willowburn Church? Could you raise your hand on behalf of them? Or So, Daniel, you've got three fingers up there. Does that mean three people? No, just one. <laughs> okay. Um, and sorry? No, that's right. We're already including those three kids. So another one or two, something like that. Okay. All right. It's a pointed question because it goes to the heart of how is this church, how is Willowburn doing at seeking first the kingdom in this aspect of reaching others and extending the kingdom? Speaking out the kingdom so that others come into the kingdom. How are we doing? What would it take for us to see perhaps a different answer to that question in a year's time? What would it take? What would God have to shape in us? How would he need to equip us to see at least several, half a dozen people in this room in a year's time who can say, yeah, I came into the kingdom six months ago. 
What would have to change? That's where I want to focus today. We're going to get pretty practical. And I hope that it's helpful for all of us to speak out the kingdom so that others come into the kingdom. Well, let's, uh, let's duck back to Jesus and have a think about that second question that I asked you to talk about. Why did Jesus come to earth? The obvious answer, I'm sorry, he was obedient. Yes, well, he was told to, so, <laughs> so he came. Okay, he obeyed the Father, very good. He came to die for our sins on the cross. That's kind of the first obvious Sunday school answer, isn't it? Right? But, you know, Jesus could have done that fairly quickly. Okay? it's Sorry? Seek and save those who are lost. Yes. Um, so that might actually be more than just dying on the cross, right? Okay? Because Jesus, I mean, to get yourself crucified, well, yeah, it takes a bit of work. Uh, so he, but he, he did a pretty good job in those last few months of his ministry of getting up the noses of religious leaders and got himself arrested and crucified. Okay, but he could have done that in a few months. Why did he take three and a half years? Why, in fact, did he sometimes do some things and teach some things and then say, shh, don't tell anyone. Okay, it's not my time yet. Okay, three and a half years. What was he doing in that time? You said teaching, teaching us, yes. Proving who he was, yes, it actually took a fair bit of time for those disciples, thick-headed as they and we are, to get who he was, all right? And to think, hey, this guy is more than a rabbi, more than a prophet. This may be not just the Messiah, but the Son of God. That happened over time, yes. I want to summarize some of all of that by this concept of building a movement, a movement, <clears throat> a movement of multiplication that actually took the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross to the whole world. Did you know Jesus was incredibly strategic in his three and a half years in how he did that? So Jesus taught about the kingdom to the crowds. He took a lot of time to do that. He demonstrated the kingdom through miracles and his own values and actions. But then you see him as we move through the Gospels, actually focusing in on a few people. He selected and focused on those who were responding to his teaching and to his miracles, to those who showed a spiritual openness to the things of the kingdom. He poured into them, focused on them. He walked with them. He answered their questions. He trained them in ministry. He sent them out to reach others from Matthew 10 onwards. Um, we see Jesus sending these mission trips of his disciples out to get experience in reaching others. And then he invited them to be his disciples. You know, um, despite what you read perhaps in Mark's gospel particularly, Jesus didn't invite people to be his disciples until at least 18 months, maybe closer to two years into his ministry. Certainly not to be full-time wandering around with him. That didn't happen for quite a long time. And that time is teaching, doing miracles, selecting those who are responding, who are interested, who want more, and pouring into them, spending time with them, letting them get to know him, learn some more, answer some questions, send them out on some mission trips to get a feel for it. And you get this sense of some people 
They just want Jesus the miracle worker and that's it. Some people are, are thinking about the teaching, but others are really stepping forward and they're saying, I want more of this. Send me out. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to see what you, you will do in my life and through my life. And it's those that he focuses on very deliberately. Um, those people became the leaders that would reach others to found movements of multiplication that would ultimately reach every nation. I was actually a few weeks ago at a conference for crew around the world, the campus ministry in Kenya. We, were, we had 98 countries represented at that conference. Thrilled to worship Jesus with all these other nationalities represented there. I went to a, a small group meeting, one seminar, and, uh, and it was just a small group of 21, I think, there were of us in that room. And, uh, and we prayed at the end. We all just prayed together. And suddenly, halfway through the prayer, I realized I'm the only one praying in English. How cool is that? Okay? That's because Jesus focused on those who were responding and poured into them and focused on them and raised them up and trained them as leaders to go out and take that gospel message to others and to make disciples of others who would then make disciples of others and continue down for 2,000 years towards us. Sitting here in Australia, about as far as you can get from Israel. What an amazing process. How did I know that's what Jesus is up to? Or we, as I said, we can clearly see that in the flow of the Gospels and, and Jesus' activities in the Gospels. And by the way, if you want to, that's one of my kind of pet hobby horses that I'm not going to go into these talks. But if you want to sit down over dinner and, and kind of dig out, well, what was Jesus doing at this phase of his ministry and that phase and this phase? It's very clear as you unwrap it through the Gospels that he had a strategy, a plan, a focus. Uh, to build a movement and to build leaders who would build movements themselves. So we can talk about that some other time. But also, I want to tackle a, a different aspect of this uh, concept of speaking out the kingdom so that others come into it. I want to look at how Jesus saw himself and what his life's work was. What was he trying to do in that three and a half years of ministry? In Luke chapter 4... <clears throat> We get this really great insight into Jesus' purposes and priorities. Now, he was in Capernaum um, where he was teaching and healing and he was attracting some attention. This is quite early in his ministry. He's got a few early followers. Uh, and one morning he disappears out of town uh, to pray. And Mark's gospel shows us that uh, it's his disciples who come after him and say, hey, come back, let's do some more. This is fun. <laughs> okay, there's this sense of you've got a good thing going. Let's stick to it. Let's build this. And Jesus' response is, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, Matthew's gospel, to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So we've seen that Jesus' purpose is about preaching the kingdom of heaven, but I also don't want us to miss this phrase at the end of this verse, that is why I was sent. That's an interesting word, sent. What does Jesus mean by that? As I studied scripture, I found that 50 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as being sent. 50 times. That's about how many times he calls himself the Son or the Son of God put together. It's equal to that kingdom motif through Matthew's Gospel. It's many more times than he talks about the cross. It's many more times than he heals someone. So being sent 
seems foundational to who Jesus understood himself to be. And what he did was built on that foundation. Let's look at another place where Jesus defines his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. There it is again, sent. Whenever Jesus defines his mission, it rests on his being sent by God. Now, interestingly, 39 of those 50 times that Jesus talks about being sent, 39 of them are in the Gospel of John. And more than half of those are concentrated in chapters 5 through 8. What's going on in John chapters 5 through 8? John 5 is quite early in Jesus' ministry. And he's talking to Jews about who he is. He's only got a few part-time disciples at this point. He's not yet called the Twelve. Listen to this carefully. Jesus tells a Jewish crowd in the temple in Jerusalem that he is the Son of God. He has been sent by God the Father. He declares that he judges all. He gives eternal life to those who believe in him. He must be honoured as the Father is honoured, and he has life in himself, unlike any other human being who is completely dependent on, Jesus, on God. Yet, he is sent only to do the will of the Father and seeks only to please the Father. So those are pretty bold out there claims from this unknown rabbi from Nazareth to be declaring in the temple in Jerusalem. John 6 is in Capernaum, in the middle of Jesus' ministry, after a fair bit of miracles and teaching around the Sea of Galilee. John 7 and 8 are actually towards the end of Jesus' ministry and we're back in Jerusalem again in the midst of a lot of conflict with religious leaders. So John's kind of taking some big leapfrogs through Jesus' ministry. John 5 is really early, 6 is about the middle, 7 and 8 are getting towards the end. So he's speeding through a lot of the material that, you know, if you want to fill in the gaps there, you'll have to go to the other synoptic gospels. But... Um, uh, where are we? Lost my place there. Um, again, in, in John 7 and 8, it's all about Jesus' identity. He clearly claims to have been sent by the Father to have divine ability and prerogatives, to be the one source of salvation for everyone. It can be summarized by John 6.39, which says, And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, I could spend the whole weekend just on those couple of verses there. There's stacks packed in there. But I just want to pick up again this foundational concept of Jesus' identity that he is sent. In fact, it's quite detailed. If you put all those verses together about Jesus' sentness, we find out that Jesus knows who sent him. He knows to whom he has been sent. He knows what he has been sent to do and by when. Very specific, very intentional. That's what he was doing in those three and a half years of ministry. He was sent not only to die on the cross and open up the way to heaven, and to eternal life and to 
um, justification and relationship with God, yes, that, but also to raise up a movement of disciples who will take the gospel, the news of the kingdom of heaven, the news of the death and resurrection of Jesus to the world. How is that relevant to us now? Well, apart from John 5 to 8, there's one other place where the word sent is concentrated in John's gospel, and that's in chapter 17 as Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for all the disciples that will follow after them. He uses that word seven times just in that chapter. But importantly for us, there is John 17 verse 18 where Jesus says, As you, remember he's praying to God, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And he repeats that or echoes that in chapter 20 verse 21 where the resurrected Jesus, speaking to his disciples, um, terrified in that upper room, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. If we are a follower of Jesus, then we are sent ones, just as Jesus was a sent one. To be a Christian means that we have been sent by Jesus into the world. Now, when I asked you at the start, who am I? I wonder how many of us thought of that. I've been sent by Jesus into this world. Okay, but it's foundational to our identity in Christ. We are sent ones. If you want to truly seek first the kingdom, then you must be committed and put time and effort into the growth of the kingdom beyond yourself, speaking out the kingdom so that people come into the kingdom. You must have this sense of of being a sent one. It has to be foundational to your identity and inform everything you do and everything you say. What does it mean? What does it look like? How did Jesus send his disciples and us as the Father sent him? Well, obviously it does not mean that we get born in a stable, nor that we grow up in Nazareth. It certainly doesn't mean that we are divine, and you're very lucky that I'm not divine. or that we have to die for the sins of the world. And I am very thankful for that bit. What does it mean to be sent as the Father sent Jesus? Well, first and foremost, I think being sent means living in the awareness of being sent. Jesus had such a clear understanding of being sent from the Father that it just kept coming out of his mouth. Like I said, 50 times in the Gospels. So it should be for us. It should affect how we interact with each person that God places in our path because God has sent us to interact with them. There is purpose to this interaction, no matter how small. That means the checkout chick, the petrol station guy, all the way through to family and friends and workmates. How would God want you to treat this person in front of you right now? Why has he sent you to them now? Well, that certainly means shining God's, shining God into this person's life. Be that by showing love, kindness, and interest in them, because God is interested in them. It means being just and honest. It means speaking out the kingdom with them, to them, given opportunity. It means... Praying, asking them if you can pray for them, perhaps. 
It certainly means asking God, why have you sent me to this person? What am I here for? Well, secondly, being a sent one means that we are on, in this world on mission. That mission, the Great Commission, making disciples, preaching the kingdom of heaven, whatever you want to call it, it is the reason we are here. Look, our primary purpose of existence is to know God and walk with him, right? But we will do that into eternity. That won't change. The primary reason that Jesus keeps us here on this planet, this side of eternity, this side of heaven, is to do what cannot be done in heaven. And that is to make disciples of other people, to speak out the kingdom to them and help them come into the kingdom. We won't get to do that in heaven, only here. I'm talking about our neighbours, our family, even each other at church, whoever we have the opportunity to demonstrate God to because we are sent to do so, because we are empowered by the Spirit to do so. Jesus was sent to preach the kingdom and he sends us to do the same. That means this mission, preaching the kingdom, is more important than career. It is more important than making money. It is more important than what friends or family think. It's more important than health or comfort. That mission is worth living wholeheartedly for. It is even worth dying for. And many have. So how do we do that mission? What does it look like? How do we preach the kingdom and be salt and light? How do we help people around us to get to know Jesus, to understand the kingdom and step into it? How do we introduce to our saviour our friends and family and classmates, workmates? Well, first let me tell you a story. It's pretty quick and it's pretty local. Kate is a second-year university student at USQ in Toowoomba right now. Over the last summer, she was introduced to Cameron Fletcher, who's one of our Power to Change missionaries who lives in Toowoomba. And over that summer, Cam fairly quickly and simply taught her how to use a simple gospel outline and challenged her to share that gospel outline with somebody soon. So Kate boldly asked her friend, her best friend, if she would read through this gospel outline with her. And that best friend decided to follow Jesus as a result, decided to step into the kingdom. Well, Kate was pretty excited about that. And Cameron said, you know, when you get back onto university campus at the start of this year for orientation week, why don't you do the same? Why don't you find some people on campus to speak the kingdom to, to share that gospel outline with? So Kate said, sure. And she did. And during orientation week, she had some great spiritual conversations with people at USQ. And three international students, as a result, decided to follow Jesus that week with Kate. Isn't that amazing? But what's amazing? Kate? No, not really. She would describe herself as shy. But she was simply taking the initiative, stepping out and speaking about the kingdom, speaking about Jesus to people. And they were responding. And God was at work. That's the amazing part. God drawing people into his kingdom. But anybody can do that. 
Anybody can partner with Jesus to speak the kingdom and to see people step into it. How? How do we do that? Let's get more and more practical. There's lots of techniques in evangelism or witnessing, sharing your faith that we could get into. There's apologetics, polemics, worldview comparisons, demonstrating God's love in action. Kurong has stacks of books on those, and you've got people here like Daniel and Sarah uh, who are actually pretty well trained in that stuff, and I'm sure some of you are too. So this morning, I just want to look at a few principles as we consider speaking out the kingdom so that others come into it. It's also known as evangelism. Uh, And then we're going to get some practical tips on how to conduct conversations about Jesus. And you know, the best person that I know of to speak about that, and who also really lives it out brilliantly, is Cameron Fletcher, who translates. Now, fortunately, we videoed Cam talking about those two topics. Uh, last year. So we're just going to play those videos Um, and there's going to be an opportunity for questions as well Uh, and you're going to have a go so pay attention okay. Um, Now there's actually, get this, there are 20 videos but they take a total of just 20 minutes. (laughs) They're short snippets each okay. Um, The first 10, the first set are actually all about principles in sharing your faith. Just some things to have in mind as you approach this whole concept of having a spiritual conversation. The second set of 10, which I think we can run continuously, uh, is about how to go about a spiritual conversation. Because you know there's actually two parts to speaking out the kingdom so that somebody else enters it. One is just getting into a spiritual conversation with people and talking about Jesus and the kingdom. Okay, And that's what we're going to focus on in these videos. The second part is the gospel. Okay, how do I step into the kingdom? And we'll come back to that after the videos, okay? Okay, how are we going up there? Can we run? Okay, so just run straight through that first set of 10. Cricket first, yep. We'll have a time, just a couple of minutes for questions from this first set after that. talk to others about Jesus. When I say those words, or evangelism, or witnessing, what comes to mind? For some people, it's fear. Ah, that'll take me way out of my comfort zone. For others, it's what happens if if I stuff it up, mess something up? And then again, what if I get a no? What if someone isn't interested? And I don't want to force things upon people and make them do something. In this series of videos, we're going to look at perspectives. Things that will release you from fear. They're truths hidden in plain sight to really help you share your faith. So what is God's perspective? In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us, once we've become Christians, got that relationship with God, the key thing is helping others do that, making disciples of all nations. And when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see it's Christ's love that compels us to love people, to be Jesus' ambassadors, to be in the ministry of reconciliation. When we flip through to Revelation, we see that there are people from every tribe, nation and language gathered together. We're enjoying God and enjoying each other. And we also look at the great commandment, to love God with all our hearts, minds, soul and spirit, and then to love people. To love people means helping them get to know Jesus as well. Do you want to be part of this? Part of building God's kingdom? A kingdom that will last for eternity? I hope so. These perspectives, these truths hidden in plain sight will help you do that all your life. 
and we're going to play a little cricket. What is sharing your faith? It's having a spiritual conversation with someone. The Holy Spirit's role in a person's life is to draw them towards Jesus, help them see their need for Him. We can go on an exciting adventure to discover where they're up to with God. And if they're willing, help them take another step towards Jesus. The winning move here is not hitting a six. In fact, the winning move isn't even hitting the ball. The winning move is stepping up to the crease and having a go. In this cricket analogy, the bowler is the person you're conversing with. The ball is the spiritual conversation. The crease is where the Christian stands to have a go. The pads are the spiritual armour because this is a battle over someone's soul and it's not comfortable or easy for us at times and this cricket gear isn't particularly comfortable either. Again, the winning move here is not hitting a six. In fact, it's not even hitting the ball. It's simply stepping up to the crease and having a go. You're stepping up to the crease to have a go in a spiritual conversation. What if you have doubts? Doubts that you can do it. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus met with the disciples in Galilee. They worshipped him and they had doubts as well. Jesus didn't let this stop him, giving them his great commission. Don't let your doubts stop you from going forward in Jesus' commission as well. And what if you have doubts about people? What are they thinking about me? Don't worry, most people aren't. They're thinking about themselves and what you think of them and what do I think about spiritual things anyway? Don't worry. Kitting out your evangelism tool belt can really help you go forward even when you have doubts. That's what we'll look at next. What is an evangelism tool belt? It's simply the tools that you use to move forward in a spiritual conversation. Think of yourself as a builder in the kingdom of God, working alongside God. But first time you pick up a hammer and nails, it's not gonna be real flash. You might bend the nail or hit your thumb. In essence, you get stuck in a spiritual conversation. And that's okay, you might get stuck really early on. But that's great, give thanks to God for it. Because what's actually happened is like this little critter. The living God of the universe has squeezed every last ability drop out of you. Give thanks for that. What a privilege to be used that way. How blessed you are. But don't stop there. Wherever you got stuck, hone your tools a bit more so that the next conversation like that, you can move forward a bit more. And that's really something to give thanks for. What about if they had a negative experience of Christianity and the spiritual conversation is kind of locked up behind an emotional door now? Don't be afraid of that. That can actually be a wonderful opportunity to empathize with them, to love them, to hear their story. Chances are, if the same thing had happened to you, you'd be hurt or offended as well. And you can offer them an apology. Apologize to them for what happened so that they then have a chance to forgive and that conversation to then roll forward again towards Jesus. It can be a wonderful opportunity given by God to connect with someone in a very real way. You may have heard it said that we shouldn't talk to people about God, but instead treat them nicely and wait until they ask us why are we such a good person. I've treated lots of people nicely, but I've never actually been asked that. Maybe it's because I'm not that nice. I think, however, we just don't ask that question much. 
people aren't used to asking, why are you good? So don't assume that someone doesn't want to know about God. Instead, simply ask them. If they could have a personal relationship with God, would they be interested to check that out? What if you have doubts about God? What is my role? What is God's role? I find the distinction very helpful in kitting out my evangelism tool belt. Here it is. Success in witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That means whatever their response, whether it's no, I'm not interested, or whether it's yes, tell me something about God. Those all belong to God and He is glorified through all of them. How does a no glorify God? It can be really good for a person to say no. It helps them define where their spiritual condition is and whether they want to stay there or not. And if it's no all their lives, it still glorifies God. Because when they meet Jesus on Judgment Day, Jesus will make a just and righteous judgment. That glorifies Him. But what can the Holy Spirit do with a no? He can help them assess that and think, do they want to stay there or not? What if there's a God? What if it matters? What if I don't know enough to make an informed decision? And that was my story. At 15, I was asked along to youth group by a friend, and I summoned up my most nonchalant, don't care attitude and said, nah, look, that Christian stuff, don't believe in it. If it's good for you, go along, but yeah, I won't be doing that at all. And he walked away sad, his head down a bit. He'd taken on the results for himself. That no belonged to him, and he felt bad. But he shouldn't, he should have been saying, Hey, thanks Jesus I got that no, now use that no in his life. Because that's what was happening. As soon as he walked away I thought, hmm, maybe I should check this out more. What if I don't know enough to make a good decision there? What if God's actually real and it matters? And I decided then and there, next chance I get, I'm going to find out. Now I had to wait three years for that next chance when I was at university. But when it came up, I took it. And now, I'm following Jesus. Okay, so just before we uh, jump into the next series, which focuses on how to have a spiritual conversation, uh, which will possibly answer some questions you might have, any, any questions so far about what Cam's talking about? Does it make sense? Does it seem fairly simple and, and straightforward? Good, because it is. Okay, well, let's just roll with the next set then. I'm amazed at the power of questions. On a plane trip home from Sydney, I sat next to an elderly lady, Beverly, and she was reading a book. I asked her what she was reading, what she thought about it. This led to an engaging conversation of her spiritual journey and questions she had about God and faith, which I was able to help her out with. I could see her take more steps on her journey. And that's what you can do too. Get alongside someone, be a co-journer with them, love them, ask them some questions, see where they're up to with God, and help them take another step towards Him. In this second series of videos, I'm going to show you how you can have a spiritual conversation with someone and discover where they're up to with God. We know the Holy Spirit's already at work, drawing people towards Jesus, helping them see their need. With a few questions, you can discover where that process is up to and help them take another step towards Jesus. I've likened this to the illustration of driving a car, and that's what we're going to look at now. I find there's a couple of really useful questions to begin a spiritual conversation so you can discover where someone's up to with God and help them take another step. I call them the car door questions. 
Here are the questions. What did you do this weekend? What are you going to do next weekend? And around Christmas and Easter, you can ask about those holidays. What are you getting up to at Christmas? What did you do over Easter? These questions are natural in our culture and you can ask them of someone you've only just met. They're not weird or especially religious questions to ask. More often than not, after you've asked them about their weekend, they're likely to ask you about yours or even leave a gap that you can say what you got up to. And if they're not up for a conversation now, that's okay. We certainly don't want to force one out of them. But if they are, it could go something like this. They ask you, what did you do on the weekend? You could reply something like, on Saturday I tried to do an assignment and mow the lawn. Sunday morning I went to church, got up with a couple of friends afterwards over coffee. It was good. Now you've set the stage for what I call the ignition question. And this question is great because it will now start to look at where they're up to with God and how you can take them a step further. It's now going to drive that conversation in a good way. This is the ignition question. What about you? What's been your experience of Christian things? Then they can tell you. They may have been to church or religious school. They might have had some Christian friends. They may have had no Christian experience whatsoever and you could be the first Christian they've ever met. Whatever their journey thus far, they can tell you and you can grow to understand where they're coming from. This is the clutch question. Was that a positive or negative experience for you? This follows on from the ignition question and opens up the conversation more. It allows them to tell you the good, the bad or the ugly of their Christian experience. For example, they may say, I went to a Christian school. You can then ask, so was that a positive or negative experience for you? And now you're able to really find out how that's affected their Christian journey and where they're up to. The headlights take a closer look at their experiences. If it's been a positive experience, you can ask them, what did they learn about Jesus? What do they think about Jesus now? If it's been a negative experience, then ask them about that too. You don't have to defend Christians or churches that have hurt them in any way. Instead, listen to their experience. It's very likely if that happened to you, you'd feel hurt too. You can simply say to them, if that happened to me, I'd feel hurt by that too. Could I please say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. That can then be a real point of empathy where a Christian has agreed that they had a hard time and you can help them deal with that. This can really leave the person with a positive experience of Christianity, which the Holy Spirit can use to draw them further towards Jesus. In our culture, it takes four to five positive experiences of Christianity before someone's ready to seriously look at who God is. You may even be able to ask them a question at this point. Something along the lines of, if you could ask a Christian anything you'd like about God or about Christianity, what would that be? You may be able to further help them in their journey right then and there. Have you ever come up against some roadblocks in a spiritual conversation? You just can't seem to make progress. It might be a question someone's asked. They might have asked it antagonistically. They might, might be a genuine question for them, such as, how do we know the Bible's reliable? They might have asked it just to make you squirm. But these questions will help you because they'll show you what someone believes and also why they believe it. It surfaces the assumptions they've made and that's good for them to consider that as well. So, here they are, 
here are some questions that will help you negotiate those roadblocks. The first gear question is what do you mean by that? When you ask this question, it shows a genuine interest in the other person. What is their view? What do they mean by that? It gives them a chance to explain to you and maybe for the first time think deeply, what do I mean? Do I, do I really believe that? And it also gives you a chance to go on an adventure into their lives and really learn what is life like for them. And that's a great thing to do. The second question, the second here, is how'd you come to that conclusion? This is a really nice way of asking them, where did you get your evidence from for that opinion or that statement? What have you seen that means you believe that? This shows you not only what do they believe, but now why do they believe it? It shows interest again, and you can really learn how this person is putting their ideas together. Third gear, the third question is, have you ever really considered, and you offer here, an alternative to their view. It can be a little bit challenging, but it's gentle. So for example, have you ever considered the Bible might actually be reliable? There could be good evidence for it. How will that change things for you? And you ask this gently, of course, with respect, so that they can have a chance to say either yes, I'd like to consider that, or no, it won't really make any difference to me. And if they say no, it won't make any difference to me, that's okay. You don't have to talk about it with them. And it's better not to. It's better just say, well, that's, that's fine. I won't tell you how I know that. The break question is about gauging the real interest behind their question. So they've asked you a question. You don't want to just get into an information dump. They may not want that. You want to see, is there real interest there? And surface that. You want to be able to look to them and say, if I could answer this question for you, to your satisfaction, what difference will it make? You want to get them to place some value on this. And if they say, no, nah, wouldn't make any difference to how I think, then that's okay, you can just talk about the weather or whatever else. It's very powerful not answering their question, if they're not interested, because it challenges them. Well, hang on, there could be an answer to that. Do I really want to know it or not? And if there is genuine interest there, then great, you just answer that question. Let's assume that they've responded your answer would make a difference to them. Now it's time to rev the engine and resume the conversation. But what if you don't know the answer to the question? That's okay. All you need to do is say, that's a great question. I don't know enough to give you a good answer now. So I'll go away and have a look at it. Let's meet up again and I'll tell you what I found out. It'll be good for the both of us. The next question is the indicator question. And it's a fantastic question to ask to see if they've heard of the concept of knowing God personally. And gives them a chance to explore that. It goes like this. Have you ever heard of the concept that you could know God personally? And they may answer, no, I've not heard of that, or yes, I have. If yes, you can ask a bit about that. If no, you can say, would you like to check that out as an option? See what you think. And if they say yes, you could simply share the Knowing God Personally booklet with them and give them that chance to check out, do I want to know God personally and what would that mean? Did you notice some of the scenery going through Toowoomba and uh, Laurel Bank Park was the setting of the first, first one? 
It's Queen's Park, was it? No, sorry. Um, yeah, you're right, Queen's Park. Um, so what was the ignition question? Can you remember? What was Cameron's ignition question for a spiritual conversation? Something like that? That was the car door question, was what'd you get up to on the weekend, all that. What's the ignition question? You were close. That was the next one. It's what you, what's been your experience of Christian things? Yep, yep, okay. So uh, it comes after the, the door question of, yeah, and your response to their question and just mentioning church, something to do with church or going to a Bible study or something like that so that the door is open to talk about God. Okay, and then that ignition question of, so what's been your experience of Christian things? You know, I have used that question, particularly in aeroplanes, any number of times. And it just opens up a conversation with people really easily. Okay? It's natural. Uh, it's, it's, it fits in with our Aussie culture really well. Um, you know, what do you do on the weekend? What are you doing for Christmas? Are you going camping? This sort of stuff. And then what's been your experience of Christian things? Um, it's just, it fits with our culture. It's natural. And people are often like, uh, okay, that's unexpected. Uh, and and they, you can see it in their faces. It's kind of like, I'm in a spiritual conversation. How would I get here? <laughs> yeah. um, but it feels okay. Uh, this topic that perhaps is not talked about often in our culture, you can get there quite naturally using these questions. Okay? Any questions about any of the other the bits and pieces? What to do with a negative experience, apologising, how to handle their difficult questions, roadblock questions? I love that question of Cameron's of, if I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, what difference would that make in your life? That's brilliant. Because it forces people to think about, did I just ask that question just to have a conversation, to stop you talking, or am I actually interested? Okay, would it make a difference? Would it take me further in my journey? Um, and you want to know that before you go onwards. I mean, I can talk for 20 minutes on the historical reliability of the New Testament, but most people aren't interested in that, particularly in our culture these days. Okay, apologetics has almost had its day. It's useful to train Christians and give us confidence, but most not non-Christians are not asking those questions anymore. Okay, they're much more interested in story, testimony, what difference does it make in your life. Um, so, you know, I don't often use that information, and I check if people are asking about, you know, how do we know that the, the stories about Jesus are true or something like that. I use Cameron's question. And most often people go, no, actually, that wouldn't make a difference. Let's go, well, let's leave it. Let's move on to something else that would make a difference. And that's, I often use Cameron's other question of, so if you could ask a Christian any question about God that would actually make a difference in your life, what would it be? And some people just go, Duh, I can't think of anything. <laughs> and that's okay. But some people will go, well, actually, I've had this question for ages. Yeah, and they'll put it out there, and you can have a wonderful conversation with them about something that they actually want to know about. So, okay. Um, does that all make sense? Good, because I want to take a few more minutes, and I want you to turn to the person that you had a chat to at the start today, and I want you to actually have a practice, have a go at a spiritual conversation. Okay, you're going to take turns. So one person can be... Uh, Positive, interested, not nasty, um, not yet Christian, okay? 
um, and one of you can can be trying to get into a spiritual conversation um, and just just ask that open door question of you know what'd you get up to on the weekend um, if you're the person in the, the not yet believer situation be nice say things that are going to help the conversation go forward <laughs> okay the idea is to get a bit of practice all right so um, what did you get up to on the weekend is a good start. And then, wh so what's been your experience with Christian things? Okay, um, you can throw in a question. We probably won't have a huge amount of time to get into the deeper conversation. But just get a hang of using those first initial questions and then we'll swap around, okay? The mic's there now? Okay, great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you do get some interesting discussions. By the way, there, there is more than, than one door opener question. So, for example, on a plane, I will often ask the person sitting next to me, so are you headed away from home or coming back? You know, or what takes you down to Melbourne for this couple of days, which they've already told me, sort of thing. And just, just unpack some stuff. I have the, the sneaky advantage that if they ask me that, I can actually talk about being in, in ministry. Um, uh, yeah, or putting Christian chaplains in universities is the line I usually use. Um, but you can get into those sort of casual conversations quite easily about what you do and life at home and throw in church and that sort of stuff quite easily and naturally. And there's your launching pad. Okay, I'm, I'm aware of time. We've gone well over time and we want to have morning tea. Yay. But one last thing before we go. Does everybody here have a smartphone? Android or Apple? Sorry if you're a Windows user. <laughs> Can you take out your smartphone, please? Take out your smartphone. And go to either the App Store or the Play Store. We all got reception. We all got data. Okay. If you don't have data, you don't have reception here, you can do it some other time. But those of you who are there... I want you to search for an app. Um, in the Apple Store, it'll be Knowing God Personally. Knowing God Personally. Uh, in the Play Store, in fact, in both, um, there is God Tools. God Tools. Okay? Um, both of them are put out by Crew internationally. I'd like you to actually download that. It's free. People, people finding it okay? Yeah, got it? Excellent. If you've downloaded God Tools, you'll actually have a few different things there. And the Knowing God Personally gospel outline is within God Tools. In the Apple Store, it's there on its own as well as Knowing God Personally, just the booklet. Okay. Um, this is a, a very simple four-point gospel outline, but it actually has a fair bit packed into the app in terms of extra Bible verses to look at, concepts to unpack like sin and Jesus dying for us and that sort of stuff. But remember I said that there are two parts to speaking out the kingdom such that others come into the kingdom. The first is getting into a spiritual conversation, and that's what we've had Cameron uh, encouraging us to do and giving us some skills in. The second is actually sharing the actual gospel with somebody. When somebody is ready to make a decision to follow Jesus, to step into the kingdom, what do they need to know to cross the line? And it's actually not a lot. The gospel is very, very simple. The knowing God personally is that simple gospel outline. 
And it's as easy as whip out your, your phone and walk somebody through the four points. It will include um, a prayer to pray and a decision point for them, a challenge to them to make a decision. It includes a little bit of follow-up afterwards. Um, so it's all there. It's very easy to use. We don't have time today to kind of have some role-playing practice with that tool, um, but it is great. It's been used all around the world. If you want it in um, lots of different languages, uh, then I can show you how to get that as well. Uh, but the Knowing God personally that you've got is in English. Um, so have a look at that. Have fun with that. It really is very straightforward to use with somebody who's interested in how do I follow Jesus. Okay? Well, let me pray to finish up with. God, thank you so much for the time that we've had this morning. Thank you for uh, keeping my throat uh, well enough to, to speak and to move through this time. Thank you so much, Jesus that you gave us the Great Commission, that you invited us to participate with you, to partner with you on this wonderful adventure of speaking out the kingdom, of growing the kingdom, seeing others enter the kingdom of heaven. What purpose that gives to our lives. What adventure. And God, I pray that you would kind of bed down in our spirits that concept of being a sent one. We are sent by you as you sent Jesus. You send us into the relationships, the interactions of our daily lives to represent you, to demonstrate your character, your kingdom in our relationships with others and to speak out the kingdom. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would show us those opportunities to do so. Help us to, to get into the habit of talking to people about you, asking them about their lives and their weekends and talking about our walks with you, our relationship with you and listening to them and finding out their spiritual journey and partnering with you to take them a few steps further. Thank you, Jesus, for this beautiful day and we pray that our enjoyment of it would be to your glory as our whole lives would be to your glory. Amen.